This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the first episode of season 12, a brand new season for a brand new year. Happy New Year and welcome to 2024. Over the Christmas period, British Murders achieved a remarkable 4 million total podcast downloads. Thank you everyone for listening, sharing, telling friends and family about the show and just supporting me in general. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you've been here for a while, then you'll know what's coming at the start of this episode. If you are new here, I always do two opening icebreakers just to break the tension a little bit. The jingles for the two segments are voiced by my daughter. I recorded them ages ago. She is a bit older now, so she does speak a lot more clear, but I'm just keeping them for the cuteness factor. Here is the first opening icebreaker segment. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know the universe's average colour is called cosmic latte? In a 2002 study, astronomers found that the light coming from galaxies averaged into a beige colour that's pretty close to white. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. If ignorance is bliss, why aren't there more happy people in the world? Stephen Fry. This case was suggested by one of my listeners called Clem Mackey, who requested it via messenger. We're near the village of Buxton this week, located in the east of England county of Norfolk. Norfolk and Suffolk make up an area in the east of England known as East Anglia, if you weren't aware. And Buxton is located 11 miles north of the centre of Norwich, 78 miles northeast of Cambridge, and 129 miles northeast of London. Here are five quick fire facts about Buxton. Number one, Buxton is located within an area known commonly as the Norfolk Broads, although the correct term, I understand, is the Broads National Park. I've never been, although it does look spectacular. It just makes me think of Alan Partridge. Number two, RAF Coltishall was a former Royal Air Force station which operated from 1939 to 2006. It was located just under 23 miles east and slightly north of Buxton and plays a key role in this story, so listen out for further mentions of it. Number 3, Buxton War Memorial is a Grade 2 listed building in the village. It was built in memory of the men of Buxton who lost their lives in the First World War. Number 4, the River Burr runs alongside the village and essentially separates it from the nearby village of Lamas, a place that also gets a mention later in the story. If I'm pronouncing any of these wrong, just let me know. And number five, the name Buxton is of Anglo-Saxon and Viking origin. It derives from an amalgamation of Old English and Old Norse for a settlement, either named for Booker or Deer. According to the 2021 census, Buxton's approximate population is 1,295. Those of you listening intently to my dulcet West Yorkshire tones will have noticed that I said our location this week is near Buxton, rather than in the village itself. That's because the events I'm about to unravel actually occurred very close to the old Royal Air Force Station, RAF Coltishall, that I mentioned in my key facts. Technically located in an area called Badersfield, 
RAF Coltishall was built shortly after the Second World War began and was at first used as a fighter plane airfield. Its relevance to this story doesn't stop at being the location close to which a horrendous murder took place. Its significance is elevated due to the father of the young woman killed being based at the RAF station, bringing the tragic events even closer to home. Peter Lean was a chief technician in his early 40s during this story's events in the autumn of 1995, with his military service taking him all over the world. During that time period, the Bosnian War was just a few months away from reaching its climax. In an effort to help bring the conflict to a close, Peter was spending a lot of his time in the former Yugoslavian country, helping to keep Jaguar warplanes in the air during peacekeeping missions. He was over there serving with a Jaguar squadron. Before being required to be stationed there, he spent his free time at home on Crown Road in nearby Buxton, where he lived with his two children, 18-year-old Rachel and 16-year-old Stephen. Being the eldest of two siblings, with a dad working and living over 1,500 miles away and a younger brother to look out for, Rachel Lean took on the role of unofficial head of the household. The siblings' mum, Vanessa, was divorced from Peter and lived 10 miles south of her children in the village of Aldborough. Vanessa worked at Porvair PLC in the town of Kings Lynn, 45 miles west of Buxton, so it makes sense as to why the kids primarily lived with Peter, who worked just a couple of miles up the road when he was in the UK. Rachel was an extremely conscientious girl growing up. Her secondary education years were spent at Aylsham High School, where her teachers noted not only her strong and dedicated work ethic, but also her ability to help motivate other pupils to get the best out of them. Based on my research, I got the impression that Rachel was someone who worked incredibly hard at ensuring she gave herself the best chance in life by being disciplined and staying focused. Knowing what she wanted to do in life, become a teacher, Rachel had a goal to strive for. Upon completing high school, she applied for a college and spent the next two years studying A-levels in English, Sociology and French at Paston Sixth Form College. Popular both inside the classroom and out, she was methodical when it came to completing her coursework, but also made sure she freed up enough time to keep herself fit. Rachel was passionate about exercise, and seeing as though her dad worked at the RAF station, which no doubt had first-class gym facilities and exercise classes, the fitness-obsessed teenager attended as many sessions as she could. Pretty much every day she'd attend aerobic classes or get some weight-slash-circuit training done. A key reason everyone who met Rachel was so endeared to her was her charming personality and radiant disposition. With an optimistic outlook, always, she had a warm and comforting aura that helped her stand out from the crowd. I discovered that Rachel was the type of person who thrived on always being right. I can just picture the debate she must have had with her family and friends in a desperate attempt to prove herself correct. That were back in the good old days before search engines were what they are now. The term Google it didn't exist once upon a time. In an attempt to be as productive as possible, Rachel would make endless to-do lists and tick them off with glee as each task was completed, giving her a mental boost and a real sense of achievement, even if the tasks weren't significant. Organisation was key, and it was that sense of groundedness combined with her industrious work ethic that led her to achieving A-levels in each of her chosen subjects. That meant she could apply for university, and to her delight, she was accepted into the University of Southampton. With that elation came a shred of fear and anxiety. Rachel had never lived away from home before, and certainly hadn't been so far away from her family. 
the uni was located 215 miles from Buxton on England's south coast. It wasn't exactly like attending the University of East Anglia 12 miles away. Plus, her dad was in another country. He'd missed Rachel getting her A-level results and would also likely miss seeing her off as she headed to Southampton. Regardless, the decision were made to begin her undergraduate English degree there with the course set to commence in September 1995. She had the full support of her boyfriend, 22-year-old computer network manager Robin Rishmiller, who did his best to reassure her that she would be absolutely fine once she'd settled in. Her dream was coming true, and attending UNET was the next step in her journey. To help pay for her course, Rachel had been diligently saving surplus funds from her part-time job at Marks & Spencer in Norwich, where she'd worked for two years, with several newspapers deeming it necessary, for some reason, to report that John Major's son James was a manager at the same store. John Major was the UK's Prime Minister from 1990 to 1997. In total, Rachel had put away around £800, one and a half grand in today's money, which at the time would have gone a long way. For some context, before 1998, full-time students in England could attend public universities free of charge. That might sound mind-boggling, but it's true. I'm showing my young age here because I didn't actually know that before researching this case. Despite her slight concern about properly leaving home for the first time, Rachel was excited about furthering her education and taking another huge step towards her career goal. Vanessa accompanied her daughter on a trip to Southampton in late August or early September to check out the campus and familiarise herself with the layout of the place. It's a logical thing to do because unis are typically huge and can be rather overwhelming at first. The trip went well, with Rachel unable to contain her delight at what the next three years of her life would look like. Vanessa was no doubt proud as punch as they headed back to Norfolk. Sadly though, within about a week of that joyous trip down south, Rachel's life would abruptly end at the hands of someone she likely thought of as a friend. Tuesday, September 5th, 1995, was a regular day for Rachel Lean. She chatted with some friends about her upcoming academic adventure and did whatever she could to pass the time before leaving her familiar surroundings for campus life. Borrowing her brother's bike, she headed to the RAF station. Once there, she went to the gym, did a workout and went straight home, returning Stephen's bike upon arrival. It seems as though much of Rachel's spare time was spent at the RAF base because it had everything. Deciding to walk back to the station to do some shopping, Rachel was spotted at around 4.45pm, leaving the Naffy store in the company of another woman. Naffy, N-A-A-F-I, stands for Navy, Army and Air Force Institutes, and my understanding is that the store at RAF Coltishall was one of many throughout the UK. The Naffy website states their purpose as providing vital services to Ministry of Defence locations to support UK forces communities around the world. I guess money raised from sales helps support the UK's armed forces. That's what I took from it. Anyone listening who has served or is still serving, please feel free to reach out and correct me if I am wrong there. After Rachel left the Naffy, nobody saw her alive again. That evening she was due to have tea with her mum at around 6pm, but she never showed up, which was so unlike her. Vanessa recalled how upset Rachel was that her dad was so far away at such a crucial point of her life, so perhaps she missed the rendezvous for a simpler reason as that. The last time Robin spoke to Rachel was a day earlier, during which she mentioned meeting her friend Maria at the station as she had rang Rachel distressed and asked the 18-year-old to meet up with her. That wasn't out of the ordinary, 
Rachel and Maria were friendly enough and shared a mutual bond of fitness classes at the RAF station, so Robin had no concerns about the meeting and likely dismissed it from his memory. I will circle back to Maria shortly, but first, let's go back to the evening of September 5th. Vanessa grew concerned about Rachel's whereabouts as she had no idea where she was after not meeting her as planned. Peter was informed of the goings-on and organised to fly home as soon as he could, arriving back in the UK two days later on September 7th. The next couple of days involved informing the police and coming up with a strategy in the hope of finding Rachel and bringing her home safely. On the Saturday, Peter spent the day asking shoppers at the NAFI if they remembered seeing Rachel. The chances were slim, but it were worth doing all the same. Local police officers called on a helicopter to help aid their search, but despite combing the nearby countryside, no trace of Rachel could be found. On Sunday the 10th, Peter and Robin handed out several flyers containing an image of Rachel to passers-by in the village. They spoke to numerous people, but again came home empty-handed. They were no closer to finding Rachel than they were five days earlier when she initially went missing, until a revelation that afternoon sank their hearts. A man out walking his dog at 3pm stumbled across what he soon realised was the body of a young woman, hidden in dense undergrowth in a wooded area roughly 200 yards away from RAF Coltishall. She was fully clothed, but her leggings had been pulled down to her ankles, indicating a potential sexual assault, or at the very least, a sexual motive. Given the volume of injuries present, foul play was immediately suspected, but detectives quickly ruled out the possibility of suicide. Rachel was later identified by her fingerprints rather than by her parents due to the extent of her injuries. Being out in the open and subject to the elements for five days meant that her body had decomposed far quicker than usual and having her parents come in to formally identify her was deemed as being too traumatic. The area in which her body was found was on private property, a stud farm near the perimeter of RAF Coltishall called Scotto Hall, which was only accessible via a private road. The knowledge of such a road indicated the person responsible for killing the young woman was more than likely a local. Let me now bring Maria back into the story. I mentioned she was the last person seen with Rachel, so immediately she fell on their radar as a person of interest. Increasing the detective's intrigue was the fact that Maria had fled to her native Bristol, some 230 miles southwest of Buxton in southwest England, the day after Rachel disappeared. Now, I typically refer to the perpetrators in my stories by their surname only once they've been initially introduced, but on this occasion, I'm going to make an exception and continue to call her Maria. Now, it could be pronounced Maria, I'm not too sure, but I'm going to stick with Maria. The reason lies solely in my poor pronunciation of her surname, Hnatiuch. It's H-N-A-T-I-U-K. The name is of Ukrainian origin, and I have had some helpful tips from my listener Kasia and her friend, but I still think the best course of action is to stick with Maria, and like I've said, it could be Maria, but that's what I'm sticking with, Maria. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Precisely where Maria was born is up for debate. One source claimed she were born in the Czech Republic, or Czechoslovakia, as it would have been known at the time. Others claimed she was born in Bristol, but her surname ending in UK indicates a Ukrainian name. 
Now, her parents were former sailor Stephen or Stefan, who was from the Ukraine and emigrated to the UK in the 1960s, and her mum was Ruth, who was born in Germany. Unlike Rachel, Maria was the youngest of two siblings. Her older brother Marco was around five when she was born, but the siblings remained close throughout their young lives and into adulthood. In describing his sister, Marco explained that she was the most confident and cool person he'd ever met. She was always so calm and collected, even when situations had the potential to get heated, and he recalled never seeing her lose her temper. She got plenty of attention from boys and men as she grew older, with her charm making them put it in her hands. The last thing Marco thought Maria would be capable of was murder. That's a stand he held throughout her murder trial, and perhaps he still thinks the same only he knows. Leaving home in her early 20s, Maria wanted to get away from Bristol and try her luck in the nation's capital city of London, where she worked various temporary jobs. Ultimately deciding the big smoke wasn't for her, she headed for East Anglia, settling in Norwich. In September 1990, Maria began a five-month-long affair with British radio DJ Richard Skinner, who worked as a presenter on BBC Radio 1 at the time. Skinner was the opening announcer and TV anchor at the 1985 Live Aid concert and is the only presenter to have fronted BBC shows The Old Grey Whistle Test, Top of the Pops and the Radio 1 Top 40 show. The whole thing was a front page scandal at the time given Skinner's celebrity status but the affair came to an abrupt end in February 1991 after the couple took a trip to Japan. Maria claimed that during the trip Skinner raped her whilst they were in a Tokyo hotel, but the DJ has consistently refuted those claims. Maria eventually dropped the accusation, but would later bring it back up at her murder trial, which I'll get to later. It wasn't the first time she'd accused someone of raping her either. A couple of airmen based at RAF Coltishall had flings with Maria and were also accused of sexual assault, which she said happened as she worked out at the gym, but what came of those claims? I can't say that may also have been dropped. The breakup with Skinner may have come about once Maria met a man called Ian Wells, who was roughly five years her senior, as he wasn't happy with what had gone on. Skinner claimed that Wells attempted to blackmail him by demanding a large sum of money to prevent him from telling the papers that he'd raped Maria. Suffice to say, Skinner didn't pay out, hence the papers printed their stories, but If true, it further backs up his claim that the rape accusation was falsely made. After Maria met Wells, who by the way was also married and had two kids, her life completely changed. According to her, Wells was narcissistic and controlling, with a short temper and fierce jealousy when it came to other men, including ex-boyfriends of Maria. She said she often felt scared, panicked, worried and paranoid due to Wells' behaviour, which included forcing her to sign a contract that forbade her from speaking with any other man than him. Any scenario that was for, she couldn't speak to any other man. Again, this is according to Maria. Her long blonde hair was forcibly cropped, her nice clothes were replaced with old raggedy ones and she had to inform Wells of her whereabouts at all times. Tabs were persistently kept on her to prevent her from breaking the alleged contract. Wells has denied that such a contract existed. I can't say or not whether he was physically abusive towards Maria, as none of the sources I used alluded to him having been so, but she claimed he would force her into having sex with other women whilst he watched or even got involved. 
According to Maria, though, she had, quote, lesbian tendencies and enjoyed the intimate company of other women. Now, I'm not sure if that phrase is classed as outdated. It certainly sounds like it could be. But if it is, remember this story is from the mid-90s and I am quoting Maria there. I'm also trying to be careful with my tone because if what Maria suggests about Wells is true, then she was 100% a victim of domestic abuse to an extreme level. Having said that, of course, it doesn't excuse what she did to Rachel, but it would at least provide some context, if true. Then again, Maria has been described by some, including a psychiatrist, as being capable of consistent manipulative behaviour, so I don't know what to believe. You can make your own mind up. The turbulent couple moved to the sleepy village of Lamas in 1993, but they didn't quite settle in as much as they hoped. Coming from Bristol, that kind of makes sense because it would have been one hell of a culture shock to go from the hustle and bustle of city life to living in a quiet rural setting. John Perkins, the warden at St Andrew's Parish Church in Buxton, said as much when describing the couple. He said they weren't the right fit for the area and didn't suit the village life. They were the village odd couple, that's for sure. It wasn't exactly commonplace for two women to have sex whilst the boyfriend of one of them watched through a window from the outside. In April of 1995, Maria targeted one of her ex-boyfriends by way of pouring petrol through his letterbox and setting his cottage on fire while he was asleep in an upstairs bedroom. She would later claim that Wells had forced her to commit the arson attack due to his hatred for all of her former lovers. By mid-August, the couple's four-year relationship had ended, with their home in Lamas being put up for sale and both parties moving out. Wells moved back in with his parents, Roy and Margaret, in the nearby village of Taverham, whilst Maria moved into a home on Crown Road. It was at that point she became Rachel Lean's next-door neighbour. Inevitably, the two became friendly after initial courteous interactions led to a discovery that both were fans of going to the gym. They attended some of the same aerobics classes and bonded over their love for fitness. I'm not going to say they were best mates or even close. Some sources claim they weren't friends, but others allude to them being at least friendlier than you typically would be with someone who attends the same classes as you. They were often seen walking to classes together, which again makes sense given they were neighbours, so perhaps some thought more of their friendship than they should have. Returning to our timeline, detectives questioned Maria upon their arrival in Bristol and requested she join them on a return trip to Norfolk. She was questioned about being the last person to be seen with Rachel before her disappearance and her answers did not fill the detectives with much confidence. Maria claimed the only reason she left Buxton so quickly was due to her mum being ill after suffering a stroke a few weeks earlier. It had left Ruth paralysed and in critical condition. She was also unable to speak. Wells was also interviewed by police and subsequently arrested, given his connection to Maria, but it was her who was arrested first on September 11th at North Walsham Police Station. Meanwhile, Home Office pathologist Dr David Harrison carried out Rachel's post-mortem. The results were shocking. The innocent 18-year-old had been subjected to a horrific and frenzied knife attack during which she was stabbed in excess of 50 times, with one source claiming the exact number has been 57. Her cause of death was shock and hemorrhaging due to multiple stab wounds, and although her time of death could not be estimated, detectives believe she was killed on the evening she disappeared, September 5th. 
Forensic teams began meticulously searching not just Maria and Wells's former home, but also the homes of both their parents and even Marco, Maria's brother. Just two days after their arrests, Roy, Wells's dad, suddenly died after suffering a heart attack after being questioned about his son's movements on the night of Rachel's disappearance. He had a long history of heart problems and I want to point out the obvious, Roy was in no way implicated in knowing about or being involved in what happened to Rachel. A day after his dad's passing, Wells was released by Norfolk Police with Sergeant Smith saying in a statement, Ian Wells has been released. We came to the conclusion that he could not help us anymore with the investigation. Maria, on the other hand, was still being held in custody despite her vehement denial of being involved in Rachel's murder across a total of 23 separate police interviews. Her version of events was that she bumped into Rachel at the Naffy store and they parted ways upon exiting. Rachel told Maria she was heading home on foot and that's the last she saw of her. Maria would eventually change her story and admit to having killed Rachel, although she claimed to have done so whilst her responsibility was diminished. Rachel's parents were reunited and did their utmost to make their relationship work once more whilst they planned their daughter's funeral. More than 500 friends and family attended the service at St Andrew's Church on September 27th, with Reverend Jack Tomlinson conducting the proceedings. I'm not too sure why, but it would take over a year for Maria's murder trial to commence. It finally began at Norwich Crown Court on November 11th, 1996, and right away her stormy relationship with Wells came to the forefront. Along with the previously mentioned sexual exploits the couple got up to, detectives found a series of letters Maria had sent to some of her female lovers, which pointed to her having a particular interest in women's bums. The prosecution used that as circumstantial evidence regarding Rachel's body being found with her leggings pulled down to her ankles. The details of how Maria murdered Rachel were also revealed. Essentially, Maria had led the teenager to the isolated private road after leaving the naffy shop, withdrawn a 10-inch knife and began stabbing her from behind. Whilst under oath, Maria said, I stabbed her in the back. She turned round and called my name. I carried on stabbing because she had to die. When questioned about the wounds Maria suffered on her hands from the blade, she said her family in Bristol did ask how she'd suffered them, but she insisted she'd simply fallen over and used plasters to help them heal. Maria requested that her brother's wife, Wendy, wash her clothes upon arriving in the city, and she also asked to borrow a fiver so she could purchase some hair dye. She told her family that she just wanted to try a new style, but in reality, it was a crude attempt at concealing her identity from the police. Results from DNA tests revealed that it was a 2,000 to 1 chance that the DNA recovered did not belong to Maria. Even so, she continued to blame Wells and his abusive ways for the murder of Rachel. She said he was fuming that she'd gone out with Rachel after kindly being invited because there were also men present in the group, which strictly went against the contract she allegedly signed. Therefore, Rachel was killed in a last-ditch attempt at saving the relationship. It came to light that two years before the murder, Maria had left a suicide note in her desk at work. Once more, it pointed towards Wells being abusive and insisted that he had told her to take some pills and kill herself. The testimony of a couple of psychiatrists with opposing views were then presented to the jury. 
Forensic psychiatrist Dr. Henrietta Bullard argued that Maria was under the control of a sadist when she stabbed Rachel and had traits of a dependent personality disorder. She was suffering from an abnormality of mind at the time due to being tortured and degraded during her sadistic relationship with Wells. I touched upon the opposing view to Dr. Bullard earlier when I mentioned Maria's manipulative tendencies. Consultant psychiatrist Dr. Simon Wood insisted that Maria's motive excuse was rather unusual and he was quoted as referring to her as being a manipulative drama queen. Dr. Wood also didn't rule out the possibility that Maria had sexually propositioned Rachel and killed her after being rejected. The jury of six men and six women retired on November 28th and returned within four hours. They unanimously found Maria guilty of murder and she was subsequently handed a life sentence. Sentencing judge Mr Justice Blofeld said, You have been convicted of a chilling murder. You deliberately chose to brutally end the life of Rachel Lean. She had done you no harm. She had been your friend. Ian was re-arrested six months later and once more questioned by police, but he was soon released on bail after being held in custody for around 30 hours. He was officially cleared of any wrongdoing on July 8th, 1997. Maria was told in 2006 that she would be able to apply for parole in 2009, but there's no further information available to confirm whether or not she's still in prison. If anyone knows, please get in touch. Let's hope that if she is now a free woman, nobody else has suffered at her hands. And that was the story of the murder of Rachel Lean. Thanks again, Claire Mackey, for requesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. This week's four new reviews are as follows. McCretch left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, My daughter recommended you after we'd finished listening to Scotland Yard Confidential and Detectives Don't Sleep, both very good podcasts. I started season one about five weeks ago and I'm now nearly catching up. I'm on season 10, episode six now. I really don't want to catch up as I don't want to have to wait for the next episode. I listen to at least three a day at work, the gym or when ironing. The episodes are short but detailed and keep me enthralled throughout. I also live in Leeds but I'm a Scottish lassie so know a lot of the places you mention. I love your podcast as most of the cases I've never heard of keep up the good work. P.S. I lived in Castleford for a while. I know you've done a cast one already, but when I first came to England to live, I rented a bedsit from a lady called Molly who owned a greetings card shop in Cass Market. And I think she was murdered by her son-in-law whose name I think was David. Early 2000s, I think. Cheerio. If you have more information about that case, there's not too much to go on there. I'll certainly add it to my spreadsheet for you. Please reach out. Courtney Holland, one of my CBE patrons, left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, I found you via your collaboration with Seeing Red, and I'm so glad I did. I'm listening to all your episodes, love the icebreakers, and now tell them to my eight- and seven-year-olds. Stuart, you have a knack of telling the story with the right compassion and show empathy whilst remaining completely factual. The length of each episode is perfect, and I love the scene setting at the beginning of every episode. Off I pop to Patreon to subscribe there. Firm new fan. Renee left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, I have never listened to podcasts before now. I got bored with just music and decided to check out listening to stories. I'm a lover of true crime and literally have to listen to it at night in order to fall asleep. I'm now on season nine of your podcast as I work 10-hour days and I put your podcast on straight after I get to work. I live in Minnesota and just hope I never catch up to your current episodes. 
finally, Sarah left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, I felt I needed to give you a five-star review after hearing you mention all the others at the end of each episode, as I've listened to about 90% of them now. Best true crime podcast I've found, and I've listened to many of them. Keep it up. Thank you, McCretch, Courtney, Renee, and Sarah for leaving those reviews. If you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. Please consider heading to patreon.com slash britishmurders and signing up for a membership. If you choose my OBE or CBE tier, you'll gain early and ad-free access to all future episodes. You'll gain access to several bonus episodes, as well as my British Murders weekly journal series. I also do Patreon exclusive giveaways from time to time, and you'll get some thank you goodies for signing up too. If you prefer to support the show on a one-off basis, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. If you've got a case suggestion, please send it to contact at britishmurders.com or message me via social media. You will get a shout out eventually when I get round to covering the episode. And that does us for the first episode of season 12, the first episode of 2024. Hope you've all had a great new year. Thanks for listening. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.